Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to season two, episode 37 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. This is going to be a tour de force episode. I'm going to be joined behind the microphone by the CEO of the Lightwave Dental Group, Mr. Justin Jory. Lightwave is about a $230 to $240 million revenue, 70 to 80 location group practice, predominantly out of Virginia and North Carolina, but they also have some other practices throughout the Southeast. We've known about them for a number of years. They're growing quickly and they're doing it the right way, I'd like to think. This is a culture first organization. They have a blend of acquisitions and de novos. Justin and I are gonna talk acquisitions, integration. We're gonna talk about the seller's dilemma to continue building or to partner with somebody. We're gonna talk about crossing the chasm and a whole lot of other stuff on today's episode. I know you're gonna love it. This was a great interview. So brew a large cup of that Mila coffee, get your pad and pen ready. You know it's a note-taking episode. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Once again, thanks everybody for joining me on the Group Practice Accelerator podcast today. I am your host, Perrin Desports, as always. And as I prefaced in the opening for today's show, I am joined by the founder and CEO of a little itty bitty regional DSO we call Lightwave Dental. I chuckle at that because you guys are uh, one of my favorites. Mr. Justin Jory. Justin, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Hey, everybody. Glad to be on. And thanks, Perrin, for the opportunity. It's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for uh, for quite a while. So Justin and his business development team, um, as well as some of his uh, uh, practices and affiliates, are a group that we know really well. Lightwave is a, uh, I guess you could call it a regional DSO. Y'all have about 77 practices uh, spread across predominantly Virginia and North Carolina, but a couple of others in South Carolina and one in Alabama as well. So growing quickly and the Lightwave uh, business is one that we uh, we at, at Polaris admire. I'll put it that way. I think y'all are doing a lot of things the right way and your growth is a testament to that. And like I say, we know a lot of the people in your organization. So two thumbs up on, on uh, building a great business in relatively short order. Justin, before we dig into Lightwave, do you want to take maybe just a second um, for our audience and, and go into some of your background and sort of the origins of the business? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you guys today. So a little bit about me and my background. Um, you know, I started my career mostly in the investment industry. I graduated with a JD MBA from, from BYU and worked on Wall Street. And then I worked for private equity firms for about the first decade of my career. 
So I was on the investment side and I, I invested in a lot of healthcare businesses. My family's really involved with healthcare. And so after about a decade of, of investing in companies, I started to have this entrepreneurial itch to, uh, to go and, and start a healthcare services business and start something that A, I could feel really proud of the end service, that it was improving people's lives and making the world a better place. And I definitely think dentistry does that. Um, but B, I also wanted something that had lots of growth. And I wanted to create an organization where everybody involved in it from you know, the patients to the providers to the partners would all, their lives would be improved both professionally, personally, and financially by being a part of the organization. And um, that's kind of what I set out for. So in October, 2014, I walked away from a junior partner role at a middle market private equity fund that was really hot, doing well. A lot of my NBA buddies would have given their left arm to have my job. And people were like, what are you doing? Why are you walking away from this amazing job you have? And I would share that vision that wanted to find something in healthcare. And so set off on a two-year journey. I had a few small investors that partnered with me that said, said, hey, I want to go find a great healthcare services business to, to build. And they said, all right, we'll, we'll back you on this. So I started searching and you know, I, I really wasn't focused on dentistry at first, but uh, a few months into it, just kind of stumbled into the space. Had a friend of mine uh, say, hey, I golfed with a couple of dentists that built the 40 office group out West. And uh, you know, do you want to meet these guys? And so I met them and heard their story. It was a pedo group and kind of kind of heavy on the Medicaid side. And um, but it got my wheels turning about dentistry, and I started to realize there was a big, big opportunity. This is a fabulous industry. You know, the end product service does improve people's lives, and there was a big opportunity because it was so fragmented. And all the dentists that I spoke to, I had a dentist in my neighborhood, and I used to take him and his partners out to lunch once a week and pick their brain on all things dental. And um, but what I what I realized was that most of the dentists realized that group dentistry was the future of dentistry. But nobody felt like there was a good group option out there for them. Now this was back in 2014, 2015. And uh and so after several meetings with them, I came to the conclusion that this was the opportunity of a lifetime. And I that I was I was all in. I was burning the boats, you know, burning the bridge, whatever analogy you want to use. I was going all in on dentistry. And so I developed a business plan that there was a big opportunity to create a different kind of a group. One that instead of ripping out the heart and soul of private practice, one that preserved and protected that, that allowed private practice to continue to thrive and actually, you know, do better. Um, but with the support of a group behind them. And that was basically the initial vision for Lightwave. Um, so fast forward to today, um, as, uh, as Perrin mentioned, we have 77 practices, 40 of them in Virginia, 30 in North Carolina, two in South Carolina, one in Alabama. And you know we're um, about 230 million in revenues today and you know quickly racing towards 300. And so uh, the last, and that's been six years now that I've been doing this and you know, we grew kind of slow and steady at first, but we've really been focused on building a doctor first organization. So we really, everyone who I hire at Lightwave, I tell them that doctors are our number one customer. And I think that approach, that, that philosophy is very, very different from our peers and competitors. And, um, and so everything we do is focused on creating a great doctor experience from those we hire into the practices who are coming out of residency or dental school 
uh, to those that partner with us the, that are in their 30s or 40s, or those that uh, want to retire with us who are in their 50s or 60s or even 70s. Um, we want to create a great experience for all of them. And you know, underlying that is a philosophy that um, that relationships matter and people matter. And that's, I think, what's driven us to be really different from, from the rest of the pack. So that's kind of a quick intro on on Lightwave Parent, I thought that might be helpful to start off with. Yeah, it's super helpful. And, you know, I love um, I love the origin stories because I think you can learn so much from people who've reached the level of success that y'all have. As they say, success leaves clues, right? And, you know, when we work with entrepreneurial dentists who are wanting to to build a group practice, and we like to call it doctor-founded and debt-funded, it's the the entrepreneurs who happen to be dentists, they're, they're scaling themselves out of the chair. They're usually growing by acquisition and they're using bank funds to do it. Um, you know, the, the, the mindset is typically, well, let me find a couple of practices to acquire because I want to own four or six or two, whatever the number is, right? And they just think about like the, the dots on a map. And and it's more than that. And when I hear y'all tell the the Lightwave story and the amount of time, the amount of dollars, um, and and the investment that you you made in the business early on with those inaugural groups to really understand the culture, really understand uh, at a clinic level what uh, makes them tick and where you can make an impact. Y'all's growth is probably more akin to almost, I hate the, I hate to say hockey stick, like a tech company. I don't mean it like that, but, but I think you spent a lot of, t- you didn't, you didn't grow for growth's sake. Right, you, you spend a lot of time yeah. on the people and the the systems and the back end and making sure that it was all glued together. And then when you felt like, okay, we got four solid tires on the car. This is a V8 engine, and if I push gas, the gas, it's gonna go. You know, and then you saw the light wave name proliferate across. Uh, predominantly Virginia, North Carolina, which is where we're located, and that's why I know the business so well. But can you, can you maybe just hit yeah. some of the highlights of that early phase for our audience? Because I think this is really, um, it might temper some of their enthusiasm, right? Like, let's get the the cornerstones yeah. right before we try to go fast. Yeah, that is sage advice, Perrin. Um, you know, when I started this business, um, I had a really experienced investor. Um, at my back, a guy named Will Thorndike, been a very successful investor out of Boston, private equity professional. And he's invested in several healthcare um, aggregators, if you will, over the years. And you know, he gave me this advice before I started Lightweave. He said, listen, you're going to be tempted to just run out there and just start buying, 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 buying you know, everything you can. He's like, and don't do it. You've got to resist that temptation because you need to slow down, build your foundation, Right. Make sure you are building a scalable organization that can support the growth rather than just buying, buying, buying whatever's out there. So um, while it might you know, sound like a hockey stick, it was actually a slow and steady climb over the six years to get to where we are today. Um, you know, we started with eight practices right out of the gates. I partnered with six great um, dental practice owners who were not connected in any way, shape or form in Virginia. And the next year we grew to 12. You know, and then the next year was 20. And then the next year we started making a jump, but that was three years in. And so when we went to 40 and then it was COVID and kind of slowed down, went to 44 and then, 
you know, next thing you know, we were at 70. And so, um, you know, but it was slow and steady. I mean, I've, I've heard of groups nowadays that are going from zero to a hundred in less than two years. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> that sounds crazy. And I'm not sure how they're doing that in a controlled and quality way. So that was some early advice that I received and, you know, making sure we're building a good infrastructure in the business. Because listen, as a, you know, we, we do promise to provide services and support to the practices we partner with. And if we don't deliver on that, right, then that's going to ruin your reputation in the market. And so that's something we've been very conscious of the entire time. I mean, if we had bought all the practices that were shown to us that were available to sell that we could have purchased, we would be 350 offices today. And that is not an exaggeration. Um, so that would, uh, that, that very much would be the case. So, yeah, like you know, you frame that. I, well, when you say the specifically eight to 12 to 20 in your first three years, you know, that nobody, no offense, Justin, but nobody's going to look at that and say, Hey, you won the lottery. You've reached the level of success. Right. I mean, that's like, yeah. that's a methodical growth path. Um, and, and methodical is maybe being generous, but to, to corroborate your point about you could be at 350 instead of the 70 some odd you've got right now, I've, uh, I've, uh, used to communicate a lot with your former president and CFO, David Wurzbacher, who's one of the sharpest individuals I've ever interacted with in our industry. And I, I hold him in high regard and David and I were talking on one, on probably multiple occasions, but one, I remember specifically, and, and he would, he said, Perrin, you would be shocked at the number of practices we say no to. And I think <laughs> that discipline of saying no is, is really um, a point that too many people, uh, it, it never enters their thought process. It's not in their calculus period. They feel like I, I found a practice for sale. I got to buy it. You know, I mean, and yep. David was, uh, we were, we were talking kind of offline about it one time. And, and he said, look, you know, it's it, culture means a lot to us. Um, geographic fit and the ability to support that practice from an operational level um, is a, a, a huge consideration. I know that y'all are multi-specialty now, but you weren't always, you know, so can, can you maybe just touch on the, the, the discipline not to be at 350 locations right now, because most yeah. people would, would die to have those at bats and they would hang their hat on number of locations, not the, the true validity of the business. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is we really have taken a quality over quantity approach to how we've built Lightwave. And, um, yeah, that's right. We have, we say no to probably nine out of 10 offices that, that, we, that, that, you know, are shown to us for sale. And uh, we've, so we've really focused on quality and it's, it's funny, you know, oftentimes I'll, I'll meet people and I'll, I'll say, Oh yeah, we have 77 practices. And they're like, Oh, that's great. And then I'll mention that we have 230 million of revenue and they go, Whoa, <laughs> they go, that's, that's a lot of revenue. How, we must be buying big practices. And we're like, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's, that's, an average of three million per practice, and we're like, that's right. Um, and so that just gives you a flavor. And a lot of them we have de novos in that seventy-seven. So that ought to give you a sense um, for the quality approach we've taken. And we've been really geographically disciplined because 
we wanted to build, like, again, the quality approach, it's more than just about the revenue per location. It's who's the dentist? Are they growth-minded? Do they want to stick around? Do they want to build something special? Do they want to be a partner? Will they continue to have an ownership mindset? You know, do they have a good culture within their office? Or is this someone we're proud to have represent, you know, the group and the brand and the name of the business? So all of those things come into play. It's not just the finances. You know, we, I remember one time there was a, a $3 million practice that came across and on paper, you know, looked like a good practice, but we did a reputation check with our own doctors and said, hey, you know, what about this practice? And, you know, so-and-so doctor. And they said, that doctor has a really bad reputation. That is not someone we should partner with. And pencils down, onto the next. You know, they're never a second thought. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of quality, the approach that we've taken is, you know, and it's not just the financial quality, it's, it's the cultural quality, it's the leadership quality, you know, it's the growth potential. Um, all of those things really play into our thought process around who do we want to partner with and, and you know, where do we pass on opportunities. So Justin, let's stay there for, for just a quick second, because I think you bring up a, a really unbelievable point as it relates to to culture and and you know the change management aspect of building a business and and we work with people uh, who are in the I don't know let's just call it three to eight location range you know whatever that sweet spot is it, like we say it's the entrepreneurs who are building group practices and and almost all of them as I've said before are growing through acquisition but the thing is I believe that there are people who are um, building businesses through acquisition who have had a setback around change management and a culture uh, mismatch or those who are building through acquisition that are going to have a problem with change management and culture mismatch. It's not a matter of if, but when. And, and there's nothing that erodes value uh, and undermines confidence at a faster rate than, than some of that change management. It, it really falls on the shoulders of your integration team and the operations leadership of, of the business. So can you take maybe just a second and, you know, talk us through, y'all have been really successful at integrating uh, those 70 some odd locations you've got. And I think that that is accretive to value in a lot of ways that does show up on, on a P&L. But can you, can you talk through maybe some of the aspects of that and the process involved? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a great question. You know, integration is a really hot topic that doesn't get much attention <laughs> uh, in the press or in the dental industry. But, you know, this is one of the biggest areas where DSOs really differentiate themselves or where they really hurt themselves. So, um, you know, as I, I like to explain it there, this is, there's a spectrum of DSOs that do integration differently. And, you know, some of them, have a really high rate of change after you join the group, right? There are a lot of changes that get made. On the other end of the spectrum, we have some groups out there nowadays that have no change. And what I try to caution people on is that if someone says we're not changing anything, that usually also means that they can't provide any support. And, um, and I think most dentists who have a successful model, successful brand, they don't want to change everything either. And so that's where Lightwave, you know, we've really carefully thought about this integration formula and tried to get just the perfect balance. It's really a balancing act 
on how much change to introduce, when, what things do you change, what do you not change. So for us, our philosophy is that there are certain things that successful dentists really care about. It's their schedule, it's their brand, it's their supplies, their labs, right? Basically their day-to-day patient workflow, they've mastered that in their local market. And they have a formula that works. You know, when you get a practice to 3 million or above, you figured something out and you're scaling it and you're, you're successful. And so we try not to touch or change those things, right? But what's the stuff that most dentists don't want to deal with? Well, it's HR, legal, finance, accounting, right? It's all of the backend business services. You know, it's rare that I have dentists that say, I still really want to book all my debits and credits. <laughs> you know, I still want to handle the messy HR situations, right? I still want to deal with legal issues. Um, you know, most of them are like, you know, please take those off our plate. So we do make changes in those areas so that we can manage those things for the dentists, right? For our practice managers, our dental teams. So if we're going to take those things off your plate, then yeah, we do have to make changes there. And so we try to be really upfront, you know, from our very first meeting all the way to the staff meeting when we announce a partnership about what is going to change and what isn't going to change, right? I think a lot of groups get in trouble by sending a message that, oh, nothing's going to change. Things are going to change. They have to, right? Um, in, In some way or shape. So being open and honest about that change up front is one of the first things that we do. And then we also try to have really clear processes for when and how those things will change and making them as systematic, right? As routine as possible. You know, standardization gets a bad rap, but what it does is it removes opportunities for error. And so on those things that where we do make changes, we want to make those as routine and standardized as possible. So there's less opportunity for error. So, you know, change management is huge in dentistry. And that's really where you're making your first impression, right? It's those first 90 days after the transaction where, you know, you're establishing the relationship, right? Um, and so for us, that's a really critical time. So we do have you know, a full-time integrations manager and her job is to be air traffic controller with that doctor, that practice team, and all of the lightweight dental resources and teams that we have, right, that handle certain processes on behalf of our practices. So that integrations manager, critical role, they communicate with the dentist, the practice manager of this new practice, and even some of the employees, and then they pull in the lightweight resources. So for us, we've got this process really tightly designed Within two to four weeks post-closing, we have all of the integration done with the exception of two things. That might be if if a software change is needed, which isn't always the case, that we wait. We give that time. That's the most disruptive thing you can do in a dental practice. And the other one is making changes in their IT support and environment. That takes time as well. So those two things we don't rush into. But everything else as far as banking, accounting, HR, We have all of that teed up and ready to go on day zero. And all of that is complete and fully integrated within two weeks after the close so that we are clicking on all cylinders on those areas, you know, in the first month. Um, You know, and I love your point here um, about culture because um, this is huge. Uh, We recently, Dr. Clifton Cameron and I recently authored an article in the DEO magazine on... um, you know, building successful teams and creating alignment with your doctors. And 
you know, the first sentence of our article says dentistry is a team sport. <laughs> and if you do not have successful culture or successful team chemistry, right. Um, then you're not going anywhere. You're not winning any championships and you're probably not winning any games. And, and so for us, that can often be the biggest surprise about partnering with practices is because you generally don't get access to the team until after the deal is final. And so there are a lot of cultural surprises that come out in those first 90 days after a partnership. Um, but we have developed a culture checklist that we use to help our partners diagnose and understand what the possible solutions are to the cultural problems that they may have inherent in their business. So that, hopefully that, a parent, that gives you just a small flavor of kind of how we approach it, how we think about it. And uh, let me know if you want me to expand on on any of those points. No, I, I think it I think it's excellent because everything you just said there is is really thought provoking first and foremost. Um, and um, it gets it should get our core audience um, who are at obviously at a much earlier stage than y'all. It should it should impress upon them the the need to be proactive and think through all the aspects of integration, potential change, and, and potential cultural clash with it. And you have to be intentional about addressing that ahead of time. I, I, I feel like people's fear of change is centered around um, uncertainty and the unknown. They know something's going to change. They don't know what it is. It must be for the worse. That's the way we're wired as human beings, typically. You know, whereas... If you went to, and I'm sure you have probably gone to all of your um, uh, partner offices and pulled the staff uh, a year later, you know, and asked, have their lives improved? Is there, are their jobs to a degree easier? Are they less burdened and everything? They would probably almost all answer affirmatively. You know, the point is no one would want to go back. But it's just that initial phase of, of getting firm ground underneath them and a, to a degree, a level of confidence that they're not going to be browbeaten and, you know, told how to do their jobs better and everything like that. I mean, I don't think that's the world we live in and, and no business is, is uh, successful in that type of an endeavor. So I, I think it's a, a great answer and just a, a wonderful thought process that hopefully will cause our audience to, you know, maybe push the pause button a little bit and try to think through how, how they go about not just integration, but identifying um, and allaying the fears for change from the, uh, uh, from the uh, acquisition uh, target for that matter. Um, so Justin, let's... Um, Let's maybe pivot off of uh, building a business for a second here, because y'all created an unbelievable amount of success. Uh, well, in recent, uh, in the last couple of years, for sure. But you know, M and A globally was white hot in 2021 due to a confluence of events, um, and there's still a, a good bit that's happening this year in 2022. We're halfway through the year now, and I, I think some of that pace is uh is unabated to a degree um you know and we're we're seeing a lot of our consulting clients um that are that are building businesses um some of them are, are build and operate they're a lifestyle business certainly nothing wrong with that and they have potentially no intention to ever sell because they're just looking at it from a cash flow context and then we have others 
who do have a predefined uh, time frame or a predefined number or an exit in mind with some degree of clarity and, and certainty. And I think uh, listening to uh, you speak and and um, hearing the Lightwave story and and the success you've created with so many of, of your partners, there is this aspect you you refer to as the seller's dilemma, and meaning that there's there's always more EBITDA to be grabbed, you know, in the future. Like we're we're pursuing a a strategy of more for the sake of more at some point. Uh, but there there's maybe a point of diminishing returns relative to the opportunity cost of not partnering with a a company an established company such as yours. Um, and and I wonder if you couldn't take a second and and let's sort of talk about partnering with Lightwave and and the world of M and A and and some of your crystal ball in the years to come about why this is still a a great time and and maybe for some of the people in our audience not to frankly, not to miss the train before it leaves the station, so to speak. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, um, early days at Lightwave, I used to use a surfer analogy um, to explain. I talk about, you know, there's a wave coming, a wave of change in the dental industry. And, and you know, you as the dentist are like a surfer on a surfboard. And, you know, you can... Um, you know, you can sit there and complain about the wave and wait until it, it crests and crashes and smashes you on the head, right? And drags you under, or you can pip, you know, position your board and paddle ahead of the wave and catch the wave at just the right moment, right? And then have a great ride, benefit from that, that, that powerful change. And so that was kind of our invitation. It was kind of an analogy we used to help people kind of visualize like what's going on in dentistry and right. What's the right timing for them. And so what we've also encountered, though, are people that um, are so focused on the transaction value today, right? And then they go back and they look at their EBITDA for their practices and they say, well, gosh, if I did, you know, these one, two or three things, you know, I could get more EBITDA out of my practice. And if I did this, I could get a little bit more and, and this. And they say, you know what, I think I, I want to take three or four more years, right, to, to squeeze out an extra 10% of EBITDA. Um, and you know, that's great. I mean, we're not in the business of telling people what to do, but what we have realized is that we had partners that saw the wave, timed it and jumped into us early back in 2016, right? 17, 18. And those dentists have made so much more money, right? On, because at Lightwave, we share our equity. So we, we, we have a partnership model. All the dentists that partner with us take stock in the group. And they have made so much more money on their stock in Lightwave than they ever could have by trying to squeeze out an extra 10% on their EBITDA and, you know, waiting one or two or three years to make that happen. And so it's, it's kind of a short-sighted issue. You know, it's like I said, it's kind of like chasing the horizon. You're never going to catch it. And, uh, and we see that. And so I think it's, a, it's an issue we see over and over again where these sellers get in the seller's dilemma of, oh, there's more EBITDA out, there's more EBITDA out there. And then you might just miss the wave. And, um, and then you miss the ride. And so that's something we try to encourage people to think about is it's never going to be perfect, right? It's kind of like, hey, I got to look not just at the transaction right in front of my face, but I also got to look at, you know, what might I miss over the next three years if, if I'm not a part of this fast moving train? Um, you know, and I'm sure you could talk to people that have joined other groups, like, you know, people that joined Heartland in the early years or people that joined, you know, other successful groups. And if they had some equity in that, 
in that group, um, they really benefited financially from that. Um, you know, those stories probably don't get told enough in the dental industry. Um, but I know for myself that the dentists that joined us early, early years did phenomenal, will do phenomenally well um, from that. So that's a piece that's unseen and most people don't realize is there. Yeah, I think it's it's a tough one for people sometimes to quantify because, you know, we we talk about the concept of arbitrage a, a decent amount. I mean, I, I I think we've talked about that on our pod. I know we talked about it sometime on our podcast, but um, and we talk about it uh, from the stage occasionally and and one on one with clients, and and we tend to talk about it from a context of. Um, a, an entrepreneur building a group, acquiring solo practices, you know, acquire a solo practice for three to five times EBITDA and your your group is valued at seven times or something like that. And we talk about the concept of arbitrage on the multiple and, and um, equity on balance sheet and everything like that. But I think yours is a, a an excellent point because all too often, I think the people who are building businesses with that kind of arbitrage in mind are only looking downstream. They're not really looking upstream, like in terms of their potential benefit with a group like Lightwave. That's obviously a phenomenal amount bigger, more established, and and from a multiple arbitrage standpoint on a on a you know common equity uh, consideration, the return could be substantial. Uh, even though y'all have already you've you've been in in business for multiple years now, um, there's still a lot of upside left. So I think it's a it's sort of a uh, two sides of the same coin, but looked at in a different way. If that's not a clumsy a- analogy, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a hard thing to grasp because most people are only comfortable with the devil they know, right? Not the not the devil they don't know, and. And I remember about three years in, and we had one of our partners who, who didn't take the full stock op- investment opportunity we gave them in the early days. And about three to four years in, they were like, did I make a mistake? I'm not taking more stock in Lightwave. And I, and I remember saying to them, well, um, what's been the growth rate of your dental practice over the last you know, three years? And they're like, oh, I think like about 5% per year. I'm like, that's pretty good. What's been the growth rate at Lightwave? And he's like, oh, it's like 50 to 100% a year. Like, <laughs> Which one would you rather invest in? <laughs> and it's like, oh, and I was like, I mean, I tried to tell you, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, that, but that's, 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 yeah, just people don't see that enough. And so, I, you know, it'd be, but there's a lot of people out there who've really benefited from that. I'm sure there's dentists that joined MB2, right? That, that have really benefited from, joining that at the right time. Um, sure. So yeah, there's, there's more to think about than just trying to squeeze the last drop out of your EBITDA. Um, and we see that too often that people hold out because they're trying to squeeze an extra drop out of their EBITDA, but they're missing really valuable time and opportunity on the other side of the transaction. Yeah. I, I still think that people are too um, short-sighted in the right word. They, they approach a transaction uh, from too limited a time frame context, and Correct. I did a presentation on this recently. And and they, you know, when whenever I'm asked, you know, hey, Perrin, how long does it take to to sell my business? You know, well, the the answer is like the marketing process, and then the the due diligence and closing process is anywhere from five to twelve months. You know, but the the truth is, 
you know, if, if you come to us early on being a consulting company, we may find some things that you need to improve or fix before you go to market. And that could be as little as six months of cleanup, or it could be two years on the front end. And then, you know, if depending on what you want as a, uh, as a seller in terms of what you're looking for in a, in a partnering company, as well as that equity role piece, you know, that could be working for the parent company for two to five years, you know, until there's a recap or, or something to that context. So y- you need to, to look at it from more of a, a longer multiple the time frame has multiple aspects to it and it's much a greater continuum than just this isolated yeah. process of a, a, a liquidity event you know yeah um, i definitely think there's value in working with a group like yours because that could drive a 30 percent change in ebitda right that's a different conversation than saying i'm trying to squeeze out an extra five percent and waiting two years to do that right if you can spend six months getting you know getting a 30 percent lift in your ebitda that's you should definitely do that <laughs> um yeah yeah i i think that's you know that, that's the low-hanging fruit piece in addition to some of the the cleanup aspects of a business that you know you want to get your house in order before you go to market so that it doesn't rear its ugly head you know 30 days from closing type thing and, and god knows we've we've seen a lot of that too um let, let's talk a little bit about you know, these certain inflection points, right, um, that that businesses go through. And one of the, I guess, probably the biggest one is, you know, in somewhere around the two to four location when the founder's transitioning out of the chair clinically and, and, you know, integrating those first couple of practices, arguably the second inflection point is the, the centralization piece. You alluded to that earlier you know, from a, an integration team, the, the investment that y'all have made in the, the backend services and the integration team and everything like that. But this is a really big deal. Like if somebody gets to, it's probably somewhere between broad generalization here, probably somewhere between six and 10 locations where uh, they're going to have the opportunity and to a degree, the necessity to think about centralizing services. And, and that is, that is a hard process period. I mean, I've never, never gone through it with a client where it went swimmingly well, it's costly, it's, it's a hassle. It's all of that fun kind of stuff. And if you're going to do it, you owe it to yourself to play the long game and stay in it to get it to ROI. And that's probably somewhere between 15 and 25 locations, I would think, again, broad generalization. So, you know, you term this the the crossing of the chasm and and building your own uh, operational DSO. And and uh, aside from shamelessly ripping off the title of a book from the Harvard Business School, <laughs> I, 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 right. I, you know, uh, Jeffrey Moore, great great author, great, great book. It yeah, great book. It, it, it it's a lot. It's more about tech than it is group dental practices, but there's a ton of <laughs> applicability there. So so I appreciate it. And for any of our audience that hasn't read the book. Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. It's a uh, it's a great read. Been updated probably a dozen times since it first came out. Um, I uh, I wonder if you wouldn't want to talk about that crossing of the chasm and building you know the operational DSO. Do you have the chops for it? Do you have the patience for it? Do you have the true desire for it to go the distance versus saying okay now's the right time to bolt on to somebody who's already paid the freight to do it. Yeah, I mean, we we have also seen this a lot too, where we'll encounter, um, you know, dental smaller dental groups that 
have grown, you know, from five to 10 or 15 offices. And, and I think most, most dental entrepreneurs really feel the burn at about you know, somewhere between five to 10 offices. Once you get to four or five locations, man, it's, it is, it is really, uh, burns people. Um, time demand is huge, right? The people issues, the culture issues, operational issues, recruiting issues. I mean, they just, um, exponentially increase and you get to that point where you're like, I need, I need help, right? I cannot keep, keep up with the business. I need help. But then you're facing the prospect of trying to build, you know, a whole expense structure on top of your business. Like you've worked so hard to get your business to one or $2 million of EBITDA. And now you got to turn around and spend another million dollars to build a high quality team to support you and further drive that growth, really detracting from your value. And so this is the thing that we, that we see a lot where a lot of these dental entrepreneurs, um, you know, you have, you have one or two ways you can go. Well, you have really three ways you can go. One, you can stop growing, but I don't think, you know, most people don't want to do that unless you're building a lifestyle business. Uh, two, you can build your own DSO where you've got to go hire a CFO. You got to hire, you know, a COO, you've got to hire an HR leader. You got to hire a building accounting team. You got to, you know, you've got so many pieces there to worry about, right? What do I do about revenue cycle management? Like, um, budgeting, like there's so many pieces to the business and, um, and that's really expensive. I mean, I know for us, you know, we spend at the current moment about $14 million a year on our support team at Lightwave. It's not, not an inexpensive undertaking to build a true support team. Um, and, and so for some people, the other alternative is to say, why don't I partner with someone that's already built that? And then, and if they have a, a partnership, right, equity incentive structure that allows you to benefit from that next leg of growth, right, I can kind of skip the pain of that. I can I can monetize a maximum value today and then work for upside in the partnership without having to rebuild all those teams and hire all those leaders. It's already done. I can just plug and play. And um, and then it really build out and expand my vision, you know, for my regional brand, my group. And um, so those are the alternatives. And we see that a lot. We, we think that what happens a lot, though, is that people charge into building their own DSO without really appreciating how expensive it is and how challenging it is to hire the right people and get them to operate and function right in line with your vision, that those things are not, not that easy to do. Um, so we see that a lot with sellers kind of grappling with those issues. Yeah. I, you know, I think that people um, tend to, tend to, to, to start that process because they think that's the next step in the process. Like that's the, that's the path that I need to tread because that's the way it's done. And it's not, um, it's not very intentional most of the time. And so let's try to crystallize this for the audience just a little bit here, because if you do commit to building a true operational, um, it's easier to build a legal DSO structure than it is an operational DSO structure. It's also less costly to build a legal structure than it is an operational structure. If you build an operational structure and if you make the, the investment that's going to require certainly not 14 million, but it's a heady investment for a smaller group for sure. You you really owe it to yourself to stay the course and get that thing to to pursue 
to to yield a positive return on investment and probably some degree of headcount reduction. And that also, if if the DSO is functioning efficiently and does um, yield efficiencies and increase in value, you're pretty much setting yourself up to a predefined exit to a financial partner like a private equity group instead of a strategic like a Lightwave. Lightwave, amongst many others, has already built that successful DSO. They don't need the one that Perrin Desports built for ABC Dental Group in Charlotte, North Carolina. You've got all that in spades. You don't need to pay a premium for mine. So it's it's not of of any inherent value um, to to a group like Lightwave. Not to say that y'all wouldn't buy a, a group with some level of centralization, but just I think this is this needs to be more of an intentional point with too many entrepreneurs as to whether or not they're going to do it, and if they do commit to doing it, why are they going to do it for the long haul? You know, it, it comes with yeah. a lot of tethers to it, right? Yeah, and I think I have some like rules of thumb, some frameworks to help people think about it. Because you can build, like you can, you can build in a way that you don't overbuild it, right? That's that's what I sometimes see is people who've overbuilt it, and it really detracts from their value. So, like a good framework to use is that, you know, your support team, like the team that you have outside of the four walls of your practices to support the group should not be more than 10% of your EBITDA, of your, well, sorry, not 10% of your revenue, right? So if you're, it should be more like 5%. Really yeah, we, we used a five to seven yeah, number. Yeah, 5% I was is, say, is a yeah. great place to be. So yeah, I mean, if you've got a, a you know, $10 million group, that's, that's a $500,000 budget for your team, right? And, um, and that's a, that's a, that's, that's a budget you can work with. You can do some things with that. And, you know, a lot of times what we've done, we've actually inherited some of these regional teams that our partners have built, that we partnered with, and it's been great, right? They've become part of the Lightwave team. We've plugged in and, and, you know, kind of integrated how they do things. And we've just kind of plugged their team in with our team and our bigger resources. And it's been a great fit, right? They Now they don't have to worry about continuing to build that. And they can just focus on opening new locations. What's the next acquisition? Want to hire some more doctors? And it actually allows them to focus more on the fun part of growth rather than the blocking and tackling and kind of the dirty work of, of building. Um, but yeah, it's just a, a big thing that people need to be really careful with because it, it can, A, it's tough, right? And uh, and B, it's really expensive and you, and you got to be really disciplined about how you do it. Yep. Very, very well said. Um, so let, let's sort of wrap this conversation and talk about... Um, you know, how, how we think through, you know, partnership. I mean, it, it really, I know that word gets thrown around loosely and, and, you know, some people scoff at it, right? Well, it's not partnering, it's an acquisition. Well, it's not an affiliate, it's an acquisition. You know, I, look, I, I get it, but the, these are still people centric businesses from top to bottom. Um, and, and, you know, their customers are patients. They need to be people centric. Um, And the, the partnership aspect is the mindset of we're, we're going to build a bigger business together and we're all going to benefit from it. And one of the phrases that you hear from me and DeWalker ad nauseum is, you know, that when it comes to transactions, structure beats price every day. And structure is a direct reflection of 
the the partnering company, the acquiring company, and the way they approach um, the the deal with this particular uh, opportunity here. So, can can you talk a little bit about? I, I mean, I've I've seen y'all in action in this context, but I think it's really illustrative for our audience here. But can you talk about? Um, you know, the, this aspect of only doing a deal with the highest bidder versus really the way y'all try to look at the the uh, the liquidity event from more of a holistic standpoint? Yeah, for sure. I mean, <clears throat> we see a lot of this where, you know, uh, people just get enamored with the numbers side of it, right? And we can see them mentally just like think approaching the transaction as they're just solving a math problem to get the most money right now. And you know, when you do that, you really got to be careful about who you end up with. And, you know, because these transactions, they're, they're, you know, in other, other industries, you know, when, when a private equity firm is buying a business, you know, a lot of times the business has its own team and that seller founder just, just kind of walks out the door after the transaction. Right. And the new private equity firm, the new investor comes in with a new CEO and you can kind of keep that business rocking and rolling. And dentistry just doesn't work that way. <laughs> doesn't work that way. And that's why we, you do use the term partnerships a lot because we can't be success, successful without that seller, founding lead doctor, staying in and continuing to drive and build their business. If they walk out the door, we will, be, we will not succeed. And, and that's what makes it so much different in dentistry is that and that's where the partnership piece so matters for dentists too, because a lot of these transactions, the dentists need to stick around for many, many years post-transaction. And so this is a marriage. You have to live with this partner afterwards. You got to work with them. And so making sure that you have the same vision, that you have right really similar values, that you agree on what matters and what doesn't. You agree on what the dentist should decide right, versus your support partner. You agree on, right, what changes should be made, what changes shouldn't be made. So finding that fit is so important because, again, if you're locked in for three years or five years after the transaction, that's a long time. And if you've just picked the highest bidder and then you absolutely hate your life for the next five years because you you know, you know wanted 3% more, um, yeah, I'm just not sure that it's worth it, right, when, when the numbers are at a certain level. Um, and so I think that's a piece that we always try to encourage people to think about is, you know, do you really, do you really understand what life is going to be like with some partners? Because we know the horror stories are out there in the DSO industry of partners that don't follow through, that don't support, right? That don't really take care. And, you know, those horror stories circle around the industry. And, um, and so I think that's the piece that, you know, we often really try to encourage sellers to think through. Uh, it's an excellent point, and I'm I'm going to kind of shamelessly promote or, or toot our own horn here. And DeWalker's really a, a a genius in this aspect, and that's that. You know, of, of the transactions we've done. I mean, obviously, our company is only a, a year and a half old, but we've closed some pretty heady transactions, and there'll be a pretty good one coming across the wire in not too distant future. But I don't think in any of those opportunities we've ever advocated. Uh, that our client take the highest offer that that came through and the and um, yeah, the IOIs and and I may be wrong on that but I know on the two biggest ones um, we didn't and 
you know, it, let's face it, sell side advisors get paid as a percentage of, of the deal, you know? So, I mean, it's, uh, it would be really easy for any sell side advisor to say, well, just take the top offer. It's the best offer. Um, but I, that's not the client service that we want to be in. There are others that are in that kind of vein. It's, they do what they do and that's fine. But, um, I think, you know, trying to to create a good post-sale experience um, and, and uh, to a degree caring what your client's life after liquidity looks like in terms of quality of life and the, the partnership moving forward and, and working with quality companies like yours give us a lot of confidence to do that. So um, I have an so. investing background, you know, um, that goes back through a, a couple of bull and bear cycles. And um, so, you know, I've seen um, when markets get frothy and, and people overextend themselves and then, you know, things fall apart. And I think we're seeing some of that frothiness in dentistry over the last 18 months. It's, you know, I'm seeing things in this industry that I'm saying, wow, man, that, that practice, that business sold for what, what were the terms? Whoa, that does not seem like a sustainable business model. So I'm definitely seeing things in the market that to me seem very unsustainable and you know we're doing fine, so it's not it's not like it's sour grapes. But I do worry about the overall reputation of this industry and this ecosystem that we're all participants in. And if we have more groups that take unsustainable paths and then blow up, it actually hurts the industry opportunity for all of us. And so, you know, there is you know we do there is there are boundaries, there are guardrails, right? There are certain things that you can't do to really build a sustainable business model. Um, you know, if you're focused on taking care of your, your patients, your dentists, right. Your, your team and the investors. So to take a balanced approach to that, there are real boundaries there. There's real discipline needed. And, and, um, I think we're seeing a lack of that discipline and, and some real frothiness that makes me concerned that there will be some blowups in the dental space here in the near future. Unfortunately, I share your outlook, Justin. So <laughs> let's, this would be a, this would be uh, something great on the podcast that you and I both look back a year or two down the road and say, "Boy, were we wrong?" But um, I don't know. Time will tell. Yeah, yeah, you bet. This has been great. I really, really appreciate your time, and I know our audience is better for it, Justin Jory. You're uh, you're building a great group. You've got a lot of great leadership. Um, I, I I love Clifton Cameron. Um, I, I think he's in a great role there. I've known him for a, a number of years, being a North Carolina boy. I, I was actually going to bust his chops earlier and say when y'all wrote the the piece for the DEO magazine that I didn't know that Clifton could actually write, but you know that would have been like <laughs> that would have been gratuitous, right? You know, so I had to work it in at the in there but no he's a he's a great guy you've got a great leadership team um chris and the rest of those folks david and, and everybody uh historically and kudos to you on the the business you built and the way that you've built it up to this point i'm i'm really happy for y'all i'm happy for your partners and i'm i'm looking forward to us being able to work more closely with your company on uh potentially some opportunities as well so hopefully this won't be the last time we have you on the podcast but i really can't thank you enough for the time Absolutely. Thanks for the time and inviting me on. It's been great. You bet. You bet. All the best to everyone at Lightwave. We thank Justin Jory um, and his team for making him available to us and spending some quality time today. I'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show.
Well, I hope all of you enjoyed that interview with Justin as much as I did recording it. Um, He is a super good guy, but that was, in my mind, a a bit of a tour de force and a a wide ranging number of topics. I I really hope you did get a lot out of that. They are uh, a class A group um, that's really building the business the the right way. Um, and I'm I'm kind of thrilled at some of their growth over the last couple of years. I like it when good guys finish first, I guess is what I'm saying, and, and they certainly are. So I appreciate him being on the show today with me and, and sharing his time, his guidance, his wisdom, and his experience. I think we can all learn some, some stuff from that. If you are interested in learning more about how to build a group practice, we are hosting the um, Scaling from Clinician to CEO Conference with uh, the Dental Success Institute. That's Dr. Mark Costas and his group. That's going to be in Denver, October 5th through 7th. Um, That's a Wednesday through a Friday. Wednesday is kind of a travel day with just registration and cocktails that night. Uh, The bulk of the um, learning obviously goes on on Thursday and Friday. We're going to hit on a lot of the topics that Justin directly alluded to in terms of overall growth strategy, integration, partnership, equity, uh, debt, legal structure, uh, you, you name it, it's all going to be there over the course of a day and a half. Um, and it's something we're truly um, very excited about. I think this is going to be a lot of new content for us. Trust me when I tell you I'm in the middle of building all of it right now. So it's probably things you haven't seen from our end yet. I'm happy. Uh, I'm looking forward to being able to share that with you. Um, and I hope that uh, you'll consider joining us. Um, we'll link to registration in the show notes. But I wanted to take a, a quick second and recognize a company that's going to be, um, that is our platinum sponsor, and that's the CareStack Technology Company. They're a cloud-based practice management clinical software application that's a true end-to-end solution. We have known uh, Abhi Krishna, their CEO, and Jim Gerson, um, uh, their director of sales, for a number of years. Um, actually went to see their facility about five years ago in Orlando uh, before CareStack was truly even on the market to see what they are building. It's a fascinating company with a class A product that is truly scalable end-to-end. It's cloud-based. It'll run on Mac and Wintel machines, so there's no OS incompatibility issues. It automates so much of what you do, uh, both from a business function and from uh, a clinical function, as well as dashboards, patient engagement, the whole nine yards. There's nothing really to integrate. It's all already integrated, so you're not paying multiple vendors. Um, and it, the, every time I get a chance to look at the product, I'm, I'm more impressed than I was the time before. I used to sell dental practice management software back in the late 90s and early 2000s, so it's still kind of a first love of mine, and they are um, a, a flagship product for the industry. So if you're contemplating um, an IS and IT migration, uh, they should be at the top of your list. We really appreciate them being our platinum sponsor. They will be there. Um, and I'm even trying to con Abby into to being a presenter. Um, he has built, um, he is a dynamic person if you've never met him before. And he has built an unbelievable business through a lot of combination of debt and equity investment. So I'm going to kind of play the angle on like a, a technology company. We hear about a lot of dentists that build group dental practices and what it's like to scale the the business and everything we've kind of heard a lot of those different stories before i want abby to share some of what it's like to scale a tech company 
um, because a lot of us use tech. We some have a love-hate relationship with tech. Um, but I think none of us have probably ever built a tech company, at least not to the degree that Avi has. Um, and I'll let him tell his story uh, from the stage, but it is beyond fascinating. Um, and he's a good presenter too. So I appreciate Avi, Jim, all of their uh, team for being uh, as big a supporter of this conference as they are and our platinum sponsor. Um, and, and I can't wait to see how their product evolves. And hopefully as your business evolves, and, and like I say, you're looking for an end-to-end technology solution, CareStack is absolutely uh, at the top of the list. So I hope you'll consider them. Uh, and I hope you'll spend some time with them when you spend time with us in October in Denver. Registration is still open. We do still have seats available, um, but start moving quickly because registration has picked up over the last couple of weeks. We expect the conference to sell out and we will cap it at 150 people. So thank you again for joining me on the show today. I hope you're finding this to be uh, very educational, judging from some of the the ratings and the reviews we've gotten on um, Apple Podcasts and, and several of the other platforms. Um, I, I really appreciate your your kind uh, compliments to the show. And I feel like every time I have a, a call with a prospective client, um, they tend to reference the podcast. So hopefully we're doing something right and we're, um, we're sharing some value with our audience. Certainly appreciate you being part of it. And if it is valuable to you, feel free to forward it along to a friend. That's the way our audience grows and and hopefully they'll find um, value in the content as well. If you've got specific questions about anything that Justin and I covered today or anything that's top of mind, feel free to shoot me an email at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.